0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. I'd like to begin today by suggesting that you listen to another podcast. (laughs) No, not right now, but the leprechaun in me thought that that would be a funny way to start the podcast today However, I do have no problem with you switching over right now if you want Because I think that the information in the podcast that I'm about to recommend is of critical interest right now Particularly if you live in the United States Many of our fellow slawners, of course, have no doubt already listened to it. I'm talking about Joe Rogan's podcast number 593, which he posted at the end of last year. It's an interview with Josh Fox, the man behind the groundbreaking Gasland documentaries. I thought that I was up to speed on fracking and other anti-earth practices of the oil industry, but I learned significantly more by listening to that podcast. And the reason that I'm mentioning it on my own podcast today is that one of the topics I'll be touching on is the importance of getting yourself involved in whatever issue happens to be your biggest hot button. Should you ever think that uh, you aren't in a position to make a change in this world, a big change, well, Josh Fox's story should be an inspiration to you. His first documentary was nominated for an Academy Award, and he shot it on a $5,000 budget. So, if you're running behind on listening to Joe's podcasts, I suggest that you skip ahead to number 593. It's, uh, it's not to be missed. Now today, as you listen to the talks that follow, one of the things that I hope you'll keep in mind is that these are stories about people who decided to stand up and be counted. Both of these talks, by the way, were originally given at last year's Palenque Norte lectures, which were held at Burning Man. Now, before I introduce the first of these talks, I'd like to say a few words about the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. And this is something that I've thought about for a long time, which is, if I was back in high school today, or if I was the parent of a student who is thinking about pursuing a higher education, then there's only one college that I would be considering if I were you, and it's Evergreen. I'll put a link to their website in today's program notes, uh, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, and you can check it out for yourself. It's not perfect, no institution of higher learning is, but when compared to other U.S. universities, the ones that have national reputations, Evergreen, in my opinion, is head and shoulders above them all, when it comes not to getting a job on Wall Street or making connections with the children of great wealth, but when it comes down to simply getting a good education, then evergreen is the very first place I think you should be looking and Now, after an overly long build up I 'm finally about to introduce our first speaker of the day, namely Katie Tomlinson. Katie is the founder and uh, coordinator of the student group Greeners Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as GAPS. And get this, the group meets weekly to help facilitate the creation of a psychedelic community on campus, spread information relating to harm reduction, and, most importantly, I think, to help students with integration after psychedelic experiences. Katie's going to be receiving her degree in integrative health by the end of this year and then plans on continuing her academic study of psychedelics in the Bay Area. Now, after we listen to Katie's talk, I'll be back with a few more of my thoughts about the courageous path that she's undertaken in the pursuit of increasing awareness about the various aspects of the psychedelic experience. Welcome back, everybody.
1: Um, It is my great pleasure to introduce Katie Tomlinson, she's the founder and coordinator coordinator of the uh, Greeners Association of Psychedelic Studies at the Evergreen State College. With that, I'll turn it over.
2: Hi everyone, thanks for coming in today. My name's Katie, Um, I also go by Grace on the playa. Um, So today I wanted to talk to you guys about um, my student group and how um, the work with my student group ties into um, psychedelics and mystical experiences. Um, so the first thing I kind of want to go into is I actually kind of want to just kind of briefly define what, I'm, what I mean when I say a mystical experience because that's a very vague term that has a lot of different meanings. So some of you guys might be familiar with um, the psychedelic researcher Walter, Walter Pankey Um, So back in around the 70s, Walter Pankey was um, going around and he was doing research looking at mystical experiences and he was interviewing people not involved with the psychedelic community. And while he was doing that, he was able to kind of find that there were nine persisting traits that he was seeing over and over again when he talked to people who had had um, a mystical experience or rather you could also define it as a unitive experience, primary religious experience, um, an enlightenment experience and so on and so forth um, and what eventually he ended up meeting Timothy Leary and what he was, he was surprised by was that Timothy Leary was um, using a lot of the same language that these other people who were involved with mysticism were using but he was coming from a psychedelic path um so with that they ended up doing the the research um with the Good Friday experiment and with the Good Friday experiment they gave um 10 divinity students psilocybin and were able to locate that they had a mystical experience. Um so the nine traits as they were, um the first trait is unity. Um and when one has a mystical experience, there's this overarching feeling that all is one. Um, this this kind of oneness is known as the hallmark. And yeah, the second the second is the transcendence of time and space. Um, and this can be it range anywhere from just time sl- speeding up, time slowing down to losing all sense of your body uh, or having experiences of eternity or affinity. The third trait is a deeply felt positive mood. Um, So joy, blessedness, peace, love, ecstasy. Um, Love varies from intensity to tenderness to deep concern to others to love or union with God. Um, There may also be feelings of sexual ecstasy that are more spiritual than erotic. Um, the fourth is a sense of sacredness, which is a sense of reverence or feeling that one's experience is holy or divine. Feelings of profound humility, awe, wonder, or fear in the presence of the infinite. Um, the next, the next, qu- the next quality is the noetic experience, and the noetic experience is really interesting because I think that the noetic experience carries over once the experience is ended. And what noetic translates to is seeing things through the eyes of a child or to see things in a new light. So the example that I have of this is when I had my first mystical experience, um, I had an experience of, of heaven. Um, and that the term heaven took on a whole new meaning because I had this whole different context and understanding of it because I was having a direct experience of it. And the reason that I say that it ends up carrying over um, afterwards is that being able to have that new interpretation of the world around you um, stays. And this can be seen when we interpret sacred texts, for instance. I've known in my experience is that after having that experience, sacred text had a whole new meaning, and I could see that it was directly referring to that peak experience or that mystical experience... Um, or also working as a roadmap to how to obtain that experience the next trait is paradoxicality which is feeling that things are simultaneously true and not true at the same time so this could be anything from um, feeling as though one has died yet knowing that they're still alive Um, experiencing the empty unity or void but feeling this is the place that contains all of reality Um, feeling that one has a body while still in it um, oh, feeling as one has left their body still in it and the next trait is a legend of ability and a legend of ability means that it's really difficult to explain this experience to other people, especially if they haven't had the experience um, and there's two more um, so the next trait is transiency which means that the experience doesn't last forever um, Aldous Huxley had a quote that was the mystic is swimming in the rivers that the schizophrenic is drowning in I think that, that holds up here with that trait. The last trait is persisting positive changes in attitude and behavior. So for something to be a mystical experience, this means that that the one benefits from it, and the benefits end up carrying over into their day-to-day life if they're properly integrated. Um, so some of the things that could happen is that people may have relaxed ego defenses, renewed self-worth, and increased self-acceptance, um, loss of the fear of death, um, they also have. They may also have more compassion, love, and tolerance for other. Their sense of purpose in life may also change. Um, so I bring I bring up the nine traits first and talk about the mystical experience first because ultimately the student group was designed so that students who have a mystical experience would be able to find one another, or at least that is the intention that I have, the deepest intention I have behind behind it. Because when I had my first mystical experience. Um, there was this sense of isolation and of wondering who who else has, has had this experience. Like I felt like I had just like come onto this whole new world and it, it didn't really have the support available for it. Um, and kind of like saying that, I kind of want to talk about just like my personal story and like how I came to be running the student group and how I had the mystical experience. Um, so when I um, was younger, probably like many of you, um, I thought that all illegal drugs were addictive. I thought all illegal drugs were bad. Um, and I ended up meeting someone who was very intelligent, who used psychedelics, and kind of opened my mind um, to the possibility. And I, I learned that they weren't addictive. Um, and from that point, I started, I did start to take them after after researching them for some time. Um, and I went through a pretty... I would say a pretty intense recreational phase with psychedelics, um, and during that time, I didn't want to mix my spirituality with um, my use of psychedelics because I didn't I didn't want to feel like I was relying on it. Um, so what ended up happening is I I tripped nearly probably close to about a hundred times before I ended up having a mystical experience. Um, I feel really lucky that I did end up eventually having a mystical experience because um, I realized that's what I had been looking for the whole time, and that's really what I why I was using substances. Um, my substance use decreased after that as well. I kind of want I want to talk about the experience that I had. Um, so I was at an event called goagill which um, is an event that is designed for to, to bring out these specific experiences if people. Go into it with the right mind frame. Like the the setting is designed to be able to bring that out. Um, It's one DJ. He plays music for 24 hours, and the BPM range is between 150 to 180. Um, Just to give you an idea, the music's pretty intense. Um, When the experience started, I had a death experience, um, and I I was on I was yeah I was on LSD and. When it started, I became another person, and I was on a, um, I was on a cliffside, and I was screaming out to someone, and I wasn't able to reach out to them, and I fell, and I died, and I I didn't feel any physical pain associated with this, but I did feel all of like the emotional turmoil, um, but kind of coming when I started to come out of that that stage, um. I could hear the music, and I, was, I, I, was, I asked myself, well, what's happiness anyway? I, I don't know why that question popped into my head. Um, but the music started to sound like happiness, and it was a divine, blessed happiness. And from that point, I think the thought that popped into my head is that I, I had died and been re- reborn in the kingdom of heaven. Um, while I was also in that state, there was this feeling of extreme privilege... And um, kind of this question of, well, why me? Why do I get to have this experience? Um, what about everyone else that doesn't get to have this experience? And that ended up creating a lot of grief um, in that experience. And I remember just really holding that sadness. Um, as I've integrated that experience more, I've come to realize that, that that pain that I felt was the wound that has delivered me to my life's purpose, which is to create spaces where people can have those sorts of experiences um, with or without substances. Um, and I hope, I'm hope i hoping that through the work that I'm doing with the student group and kind of my eventual path that I'll be able to work that in a legal framework. But if not, there's also other modalities that I work in to bring about those experiences um, without substances. Um, so from that point, after that experience, I ended up having... Um, an experience a little uh, about a year later about creating community, um, and from that experience of of, of wanting to create community um, within kind of that mystical consciousness state, um, I started the Greener's Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as GAPS at Evergreen, um, and the student group has been. Um, taking my life in directions I did not quite expect, um, but in wonderful ways. So, this kind of just a basic rundown of what we do. We do have weekly meetings. Um, Different students give presentations on psychedelic substances when they do or just different, like, history. Um, We have discussion topics. Sometimes we show documentaries. Um, One of the things we've also been able to do is that we run integration circles. And the integration circles that we run, um, we have a woman who... Her name is La Laurian, and she comes um, twice a quarter to Evergreen, and she just kind of holds space to let the students come and talk about their different experiences that they've had in altered states of consciousness, with or without substances. Um, which has been really helpful for the students to kind of gain more support and be able to talk to an adult that may have may have been may have been through something similar. Um, we also bring speakers. We brought Rick Doblin recently. Rick Doblin is the... He started the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, we have harm reduction workshops. We've also gone to different conferences. Um, we went to the Women's Visionary Congress last year, and then we went to Psychedelic Science the year before that. Or, excuse me, went to Women's Visionary Congress this year. And one thing I want to note with that is that the school funded um, us going to all of those conferences and the reason I kind of wanted to t- talk more about the format of what the group does is that I'm really hoping that more colleges step up and do these works because I think we are kind of on we're on a paradigm shift right now where this work is starting to be more well accepted. There's documentation to show that you know these substances do have benefits and that they, and that they are worthwhile um, and that there is a growing interest. And I think that there's a lot that we can do within that. Um, along with that I feel as though the student group itself is a form of psychedelic activism um, because in that way we're able to reach people we wouldn't normally reach for instance um, when I'm running the student group we often have bake sales to raise money and then people walk by and they're like psychedelic bake sale? what's that? this isn't dosed is it? Uh, we, we get asked that question so many times But 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 you know that that creates a dialogue. I've I've had several conversations with people who are saying like, well, why do we have a student group like this? Like, what are you doing? And I've you know we've actually been able to kind of reach out to the people that we wouldn't normally be able to reach out to, because it's it's one thing to kind of be that like lone voice in the forest, being like, well, we have the answers. But if we can't reach out to the rest of society, like this work isn't going to go anywhere. So I think that the student groups add legitimacy to the psychedelic experience and also bring about awareness. And like I was saying before, it also creates a meeting place for individuals who are using psychedelics, whether or not that they've had a mystical experience, because um, I think it's really important for students to have access to harm reduction about this about these substances, because they're going to do them anyway. Um but one example um, that I have from the student group is that there was we had a student come who had never used substances before, and she was trying to educate herself before using them. Um, and the meeting she ended up coming to was me giving a presentation fully on psychedelics and the mystical experience. And so she goes off, and then a week later has her first mystical experience with psychedelics. And she kind of reported back to me that when she was coming down, she was trying to describe the experience she was having to her friends, and her friends kind of just made fun of her, being like, oh, ha-ha, that's, that's great. It sounds like you're pretty out there. But because she had seen the presentation before, she was kind of able to be like, oh, okay, I know what happened to me. I know there's someone I can go and I can talk to about this. And, and we've had several other students come in that are really like, well, I've, I didn't, I didn't know that there were terminologies for this. I didn't know that there was a community around for this. Um, so I think it's really important, especially because I think a lot of the new substance users that come in are primarily young people in college. So one of the things that I've been kind of meditating on lately is, what's, so what, what's the point? What's the point? Why, why do we seek out these mystical experiences? Why is it important to have community around them? Why is it, you know, wh- why are so many of us compelled to do this work to provide people with these kind of experiences So I guess, so so let's look, so let's look, I guess one thing we can look at first is like, let's look at the research around these experiences. So many people rate this mystical experience as one of the top five experiences in their life, if not the the most important experience in their life. This is something that we've consistently seen with research with with several different studies. End-of-life anxiety. So when people are involved in end-of-life anxiety research, it's not that they're taking LSD and having this like, you know, they they are having a fun and meaningful trip, but it's not like they're just getting tripped out. What's happening is that the people who have the end-of-life anxiety are the individuals who have a mystical experience. Because when they have that feeling of all is one, we're all connected, they kind of see themselves as just a small piece in this larger system, and it's easier for them to let go of their life. What's fascinating, though, is that these people generally are able, they, they... they, they have more peace in their life afterwards, and they don't need as much pain medication even. Addiction. So uh, some of you guys might be familiar with Gabor Mate's research. And Gabor Mate um, is an addiction expert in Canada. He wrote the book um, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And he argues that addiction comes from two primary p- two primary places, which is trauma, and a spiritual void. And the spiritual void has been created because of that trauma. If we look at what's, what's going on with ayahuasca, kind of the research that... He's he's looking at ayahuasca primarily for his research. And what he's seeing is that people are able to have these deep, profound spiritual experiences. And that kind of helps to fill that spiritual void. And to kind of make people kind of renew their faith in, in the infinite. Along with that... The, the, the trauma aspect of it, ayahuasca has a unique ability to be able to work with trauma and to help people move through that. I'm not going to go super into that, but if you're curious, you can look more into it. Along with this, too, um, I think that if we look at kind of the different individual benefits of the, of the psych, of, of the psychedelic of the mystical experiences that happen, um, we see that people have relaxed ego defenses, they have renewed self worth. Increased self-acceptance, loss of the fear of death, more compassion, more peace, more con- connection, and I don't know about you guys, but after I'd one had one, I just kind of took life a lot less seriously and was able to just relax more. Kind of as Bill Hicks says, it's just a ride. I think also what's important to look at is how these experiences affect community and what and how this helps the individual become a larger part of their community. Charles Eisenstein, um, who is a kind of this new speaker author um, who has been kind of writing about the shifts that have been happening um, in our society around spirituality, argues that. Individuals will seek out different um, different substances in in an attempt to kind of like have this mystical experience or have this initiation, which is he argues part of the reason why we have people who turn to alcohol or why we have people who you know turn to turn to other substances because they really they they they, there's an inherent innate there's an innate need for it, Um, and he argues that once An individual has this experience um, it allows them to become a fully mature human being and once someone is a fully mature human being they're able to kind of see how they themselves are connected to everything and how their work ties into everything without that experience I think it it's a little bit difficult to kind of see like how we are unified and how my, my pain or my actions or your actions. But once we have that experience, we're able to kind of work with each other better and we're able to come together in community and see the importance of community and see the importance that our, our relationships have one another. I guess kind of just to like tie that back into the student group, a big part of the reason why the student group exists is to create community and to be able to kind of just ease suffering and to be able to help individuals manage the psychedelic experience if other if people if there are people out there who are interested in kind of building a student group like kind of kind of similar to this or be able to do the same work, the biggest kind of piece of advice that I can give is learn how to be able to talk to people who aren't involved in the psychedelic community without coming off as kind of a. Uh, my, my teacher Cynthia says hippie woo woo. I, I guess I guess would be the best thing. <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's that's one of the skills that I've really worked on is being able to be a bridge person, which is like I try to take those experiences and be able to move that language and to be able to kind of like talk to people about it. in, I guess we I guess we would say the default world, the Matrix. <laughs> that's 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 one way of putting it. Um, that that is hippie woo. <laughs> because I think one of the things that my advisor, for instance, has commented on is that I'm 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 able to like to talk about faculty and like work with faculty and not see faculty or the the college, the institution as the enemy. Because even though I have kind of come up against a few walls here and there, mul- ultimately I understand why there's a struggle around accepting these substances, and I try to come to it from a place of compassion, and I'm able to work with it from that place. Along with that, I guess the I, I've I guess the last thing I wanted to mention too is that, and since this podcast is going out to many people, the last thing that GAPS, or one of the things that GAPS is trying to do this year is to create a conference. Um, And the conference is called um, Generation Psychedelic, but in the logo the Y will be um, capitalized. And the Y is going to be capitalized because it's supposed to be kind of a platform for the up-and-coming psychedelic speakers. It's It's for Generation Y. Um... So if you are a part of Generation Y and you feel like, um, which I think you'd be the ages, between the ages of 18 and 32, possibly. Um, so if you are part of that age, that age range and you feel like you are kind of one of the people up and coming in the psychedelic movement, I encourage you to email me um, at gaps at evergreen at gmail.com. So G A P S A T E V E R g-r-e-e-n at gmail.com for it to get into the application process because I really want I really want us the kind of the younger generation to have a chance to kind of connect and relate with each other Um, this conference will be happening around mid um, mid spring quarter so between April and March and the last note that I kind of want to say is I really feel like The mystical experience ultimately is our birthright and it's one that's worth protecting and one that's worth um, bringing back into the public sphere and being able to being able to talk to openly i think that it needs to be honored and it i think once we're able to bring kind of those ideas and that experience back into the public sphere um, it will ultimately be for the betterment of humanity
3: thank you Um, You mentioned that you uh, are interested in the potential for psychedelics to be worked with to enable more people to have mystical experiences. You also mentioned other modalities that you work with. Could you tell us about those?
2: Um, Yeah, I can. Um, I'm a yoga practitioner. Um, That's kind of just something that I do in my day-to-day life for my own practice. Um, I'm also a five rhythms practitioner, which is a form of movement meditation Five rhythms has been something that I learned to do through Evergreen. Um, I have a teacher there. I mentioned her earlier, named Cynthia. And one of the things I've kind of realized through doing that practice is that I also want to be a five rhythms teacher. Um, and the five rhythms is really interesting because I, I'm not going to go super into detail about it. But what I can say about it is that it is one of the most psychedelic things I have done um, without substances in a very sober setting. And I think that that kind of I think. I think ha- one of the things I didn't mention before, too, that I think is important is for us to have a spiritual discipline outside of the psychedelic experience because the spiritual discipline will ground you. It can it can also provide you with community, and it can also be a way to reach those states and be a reminder of those states without substances, but it helps to kind of bring that kind of energy back into your day-to-day life without having to go off and do substances all the time. And substances are really hard on your body. So I think it's, it's very helpful. Um, I'm curious, sorry, I'm curious more of, you said, um, you, that there's a lot of, like, legal loopholes of working with, like, your school
0: to kind of promote this sort of, um, act, and I've been seeing things like this woman, Emily, she started, like, reset me dot something, Mm -hmm. and she's been
4: going, like, live on CNN talking about psychedelics, and so I definitely feel like the movement is happening.
2: And I've heard of, like, students for safe access, like, through maps. But, like, what other legal um, loopholes have you kind of found with
4: being able to publicly speak and protect yourself as well as?
2: From from what I understand, um, we have three, I mean, we have a, the Ever, Evergreen believes in freedom of speech very much so. Um, I, I honestly haven't run into too many um, I ran into a little bit of opposition. When we were starting the integration circles mostly it was when I kind of had opposition from the school because the school was like, well, what are you doing? Like, why are we having counseling about this? This is a legal activity. But I was able to kind of work with them. Um, other than that, there really hasn't been too much opposition. And this is kind of one of the gifts of, of Evergreen, honestly, is that Evergreen is a very liberal school. It's very open. And... Um, Right, exactly. And one of the things that we say in the mission statement is that we're not here to encourage or discourage your substance use. We're just here to create a free flow of information.
0: Very good talk. Thank you. You mentioned briefly... uh, Can you
2: speak into the mic more? Certainly.
0: You mentioned briefly the uh, end-of-life issues as far as uh,
1: uh, the, the interesting research in that area. Can, can you see that as being a way to legitimize or to bring more to the consciousness of
0: uh non-substance-using uh, population that that there is a value in, and particularly in easing this this apprehension towards end-of-life issues?
2: So you're, let me just make sure I have this there. So you're asking, um, do you feel like the end-of-life anxiety research can bring more legitimacy to the psychedelic movement to the public sphere? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that's kind of part of the reason why MAPS is doing the end-of-life anxiety is because, you know, we all die someday. Um, when isn't it great that we can find something that can help ease that for, for and hopefully everyone. Yeah. Maybe not everyone, but yeah. Have you guys been, like, archiving, like, a lot of, like, different websites that are showing the different researches that have been done? Like, like if I were to email you, like, would you be able to, like, send links about or are you guys making a library we do we do have um i have we have been slowly building that of a psychedelic library and the student activities library of evergreen that has different information on just many different psychedelic books um if you were to email me and you wanted information on these studies i would most certainly be able to send you that information as far as kind of like archiving it for the students we haven't quite done that but that's a good idea I was wondering if you had reports or encounters with people who were absolutely not spiritual, did not believe in any of this, but still had an experience like this and understood it as as such, and maybe changed
4: suddenly and became mystic or spiritual.
2: So, are you asking, have we had people who haven't had, um, or are skeptic or agnostic, skeptic, haven't had, yeah.
4: not believe it, or let's say the opposite? Do you have to be
0: spiritual to have? A mystical experience you know like. um I
2: don't, I don't i don't believe you do um i think i don't know if you're familiar with the story of life of pi um but in the story life of pi it's a it, i'm sure you guys are familiar with the book the book the book goes into this more but he kind of talks about how atheism and um spirituality in a lot of ways are, are pretty similar um it's just kind of a different lens of looking at the world um one of the things that i find that the spiritual perspective help is that it just gives us a language to talk about these experiences but i've known i've known many people who have had what i would i would call a pretty spiritual or mystical experience but they just don't use that terminology because they're not comfortable with it but it's been interesting cuz when i do meet those people there is kind of a language barrier we have to move through first and then once we kind of move through the, the language barrier like we're able to see some kind of kind of see some kind of Similarities. I'm able to kind of see, like, oh, this is is similar, you're just using a different language.
0: Wow, what a legacy Katie and the other students who are involved with GAPS are leaving to their college. And to stand up in the face of the school's authorities to argue for the value of helping students integrate their psychedelic experiences, well, to me, that shows tremendous courage. It's not very hard for an old guy like me to talk about these things. After all, I'll never have to humble myself and hide who I really am ever again in a job interview. My professional life is essentially over. But Katie and her compatriots, on the other hand, have their entire adult lives ahead of them. And to take a public stand on psychedelics right now, in my opinion, takes a significant amount of courage. Also, I noticed that one of the people Katie mentioned, uh, who is from outside the college but supporting the work of GAPS, is LaLorean. Now, La has been a good friend of mine for many years, and to be honest, I can't think of any other member of our community that I would go to myself for help with a psychedelic crisis of some sort, what I wouldn't have given to have been able to talk with La after some of my own first experiences with these substances. Also, if I remember correctly, there was some discussion about whether a mystical experience could be brought about through psychedelics, if the person was an atheist. Well, I can attest to the fact that while it doesn't happen often, it nonetheless can happen. Years ago, one of my friends, who I did acid with whenever we could get some, was a dyed-in-the-wool atheist. There wasn't a spiritual bone in his body, and when we'd be tripping and I would start talking about the spiritual dimension of the experience I was having, he would, uh, well, he'd just laugh at me and say it was all coming out of the brain of someone who had been brainwashed by the Catholic Church in his youth. But then one day I gave him a bag of Salvia Divinorum that I thought must be inactive because I wasn't able to get off on it. Well, the next morning he came to me and his hands were literally shaking as he told me that I was right, there was an other, (laughs) and there were entities there. His two-minute Salvia trip had quite literally overturned more than 50 years of denying that there was a possibility of a spiritual dimension in life. It was uh, quite a profound experience for him. Another thing that I should mention is that if you have a student group at your college or university and have an event or some such that you'd like me to pass along here in the salon, I'll be more than happy to do so. Let's face it, without a healthy and growing student movement right now, we could once again lose the momentum that has been building for the last 20 years or so. Let's not have a repeat of the 70s and 80s when psychedelics went back into eclipse. The student movement, coupled with the global dance community, is what gives me so much hope for whatever comes in the future that my grandchildren are going to have to cope with. Now, we have just heard from a young activist who is keeping the flame burning at the college level. Next, I'm going to play the talk that Rachel Hope gave late on a Thursday afternoon at the 2014 Burning Man Festival. Rachel's story about her recovery after years of suffering with PTSD is, uh, well, it's quite riveting, as you'll hear in a moment. And, as you'll also hear, she is introduced by Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. But before I play Rachel's talk, I think that it'd be of interest to point out that while MAPS is now the world's leading institution behind psychedelic research, when I swallowed my first 120 milligrams of MDMA back in 1984, there was no such thing as MAPS and there were very few people who were saying anything positive about MDMA in public. But one of the tiny cadre of believers in its potential was Rick Doblin. I first learned of him through a paper titled, MDMA Enters the Global Brain, a report on a visit to the World Health Organization. That paper is dated March 2, 1985, and its author was none other than Rick Doblin. Like Katie Tomlinson, Rick began his mission all by himself, But if he's anything, Rick is tenacious. He simply wouldn't let go of the idea that MDMA, once it was properly understood, would become one of the world's most significant medicines. He took the first steps on his own, just as any other person who launches an organization has done. Many great things begin with a single individual. My guess is that something great is going to come from you as well, once you figure out exactly what it is you want to accomplish here. Rick had an idea. Now we all have maps. Katie had an idea, now we have gaps. Josh Fox wanted to stop fracking in his neighborhood. He had an old car, $5,000 and a camera. At the time, hardly anybody outside of the fracking field had even heard of it. Now, on average, there isn't a day that goes by without the publication of another peer-reviewed paper dealing with the dangers of fracking. And by banning that filthy practice in the state of New York, the equivalent of 58 million cars will not be on the road. For many of the people involved in making this happen, it all began with Josh Fox's documentary, Gasland. So if there's an idea bottled up in you that you think could make this world a better place if implemented, well, then what are you waiting for? Do something about it. Now let's uh, join our friends at Camp Soft Landing, where they're hosting the 2014 Palenque Norte Lectures, and Rick Doblin is introducing the next speaker. And I challenge you to not shed tears of joy when you Hear Rachel Hope tell the story of how she came to be cured of PTSD.
1: Um, when we first started our, our, our first MDMA study, it was 2004. And it wasn't clear, um, you know, exactly um, how safe it would be. You know, we knew a lot from um, you know the underground work. but again, we were doing it in a regulated context. And so the people that were the first ones to volunteer for that study, um, were especially courageous, and it was also um, people were especially desperate in a way. So in our first study, we had um, 20 people, and they had PTSD for an average of over 19 years, and they had failed on pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy. And so out of that, um, and Rachel, f- you know, fit that pattern, and out of out of that came the courage to. Um, to volunteer. But beyond that, um, Rachel has been willing to share her experience um, with other people and with Sanjay Gupta on CNN and with documentaries. Ra- Rachel has been an eloquent spokesperson, and it's particularly Special, what she's done, because someone else who was in our study, when you talk about it, when you have to talk about it, sometimes it can be re-traumatizing. So one of the people that was cured of PTSD in our study um, was willing to talk to um, the media, and you know she had had um, the worry that that you know that what had happened to her before, it's okay to talk about with your therapist, but once you sort of tell it to the world, then it's everybody knows your your secrets, and that was re-traumatizing to her. So I just want to honor Rachel for having the courage um, um, to volunteer in the first place, and also to talk. And so now I should let her talk.
5: <laughs> Isn't Rick amazing? Thank you. Woo! Woo! It's it's really an honor to be here because without um, making maps and having a people power uh, raising of money to make this study happen, that that actually cured me of PTSD, I would be dead. Um, I'm sure of that. Uh, so just I want to kind of close up our time gap. So I had chronic treatment resistant complex. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I was diagnosed probably in the early 90s. Tried everything. Psychotherapy, different medicines. I was in and out of hospital. Um, Every kind of uh, yoga, meditation, breathing. Everything I could do. Um, After about 19 years and I think well over a million out of pocket because I had pre-existing conditions and was not qualified for health insurance, uh, I gave up and, and I just decided to live. I had enormous amount of uh, chronic pain and I still do, um, and uh, i just I was one of the desperate ones. I had nothing to lose. I really was anti drug I seemed like the most unlikely person <laughs> to I was you know raised in the '70s and I saw a lot of drug abuse, totally turned me off from drugs, so I was one of the last people to, to to think about MDMA, especially because I drank the Kool-Aid, and I believed it caused holes in your brain. But I did—I was desperate. Uh, how was I going to be scared of holes in my brain when I could barely keep food down? I had hardly any function for months at a time. Um, some of the symptoms I had chronically that were disruptive, I would, startle reflex was completely unhinged. So like if the phone rang, or someone walked into the room, I had no governing forces that would uh, keep my body from just jumping and screaming and having this whole panic thing. And that's, that was the most it was very, very painful for my son to watch me go through that and um, I think that particular symptom, I mean I had everything from night terrors to panic attacks anxiety um, difficulty in relationships but that one was the one that was most visible to everyone else. Um, PTSD wasn't there wasn't even really much talked about back then talking many years ago um, why did I go in the study <laughs> uh, besides desperation because it, as I read all the clinical trials that were studying post traumatic stress disorder um, actually I was, uh, I was uh, blackmailed by my assistant that if I didn't keep trying to get well that he would leave and I was desperately <laughs> needed my assistant shield me from the world because I could hardly leave the house very often and I needed to work so he said you have to pick one of the studies he printed like a stack this big off the internet and I, when I got to it took me a couple weeks when I got to the MAP study it was impossible <laughs> the FDA requirements for the study the protocol was so outrageously restrictive and nuts that I thought how are these people even going to accomplish this <laughs> And I root for the underdog. Um, and as I said, I thought, what do I have to lose? None of those other pharmaceutical companies ever came up with anything that helped me before. So maybe this medicine that people talk about, maybe that'll help. Um, so that will help. So I was in the clinical trial. I was treated, like you said, with two sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I think they were like two months apart. And my symptoms went away 90% percent were gone and never came back. So I went from like, I was born. Yeah. Pretty shocking actually. And I went around going, what the hell happened? Because after being so sick, I mean there's actual file cabinets I'm sure like seven different doctors had, they couldn't fix me. I became more aware of why I was broken But I, until I had those sessions where I was given the ability to be have reduced anxiety and address the traumatic experiences. I was raped as a child. I was hit by a truck as a child. And I had massive injuries. Um, be able to address those situations in therapy without flipping out and re-traumatizing myself or someone else. But at the same time, so having a reduction of anxiety, which MDMA gives you, but also increasing awareness at the same time. So it wasn't dumbing down my awareness like an anti-anxiety medication or something like that. So I addressed those issues very productively in the therapy. And that's what, it wasn't just the MDMA, it wasn't just the psychotherapy, it was the, co- the combination. it's like combination lock. The experience for me was like being my very best self I ever have ever been and getting to be that best self and heal the most wounded and injured and hopeless self that I ever was. I got to be my own healer. Well, I thought that it was awesome to just run around with 10% of my symptoms for like nine years, and I wasn't... I thought, oh, I'm just going to take my... You know, take it and go, and didn't mess with myself. I got to go back into the clinical trial on a relapse. I had more surgery, my 12th surgery, new titanium part put in my neck, and that experience was very... Like you said, re-traumatizing, remembering um, my days of recovery and paralysis after the energy injury. I remembered all that four months on bed rest, and luckily, I wrote to them and said, I'm really kind of sick again, and I was able to go into the relapse study. Well, I thought I was just going to get better like I was. I got cured. I no longer have PTSD. So those 10% wrong. Oh, and it's heavy. People don't like to say cured. Um, I still have post-traumatic stress. No one's ever going to take away my my history or my memories. But it's not a disorder that's taken over my life. So in some ways, I wander around going, I'm born. I'm healthier, happier, more adjusted, having my clarity and my thoughts than I ever have in my whole life. It's like being a little kid. Um, but anyway, I wanted to tell you what it's like from a a patient standpoint um, the, the world of recreational drugs is really foreign to me um, and I maintain a lot of my realization drug free and through ecstatic dance um, I, I was introduced into those portals into my brain through the MDMA so assisted psychotherapy and realized that I could access them without the drug at, at all and weekly I do ecstatic dance and I keep myself on a maintenance plan um, but I wanted to be kind of like an advocate to say, I really do believe what Rick is doing to, um, to get this medical treatment available through the scientific channel is true. One of the reasons that I go around talking about my uh, private life and some of the most humiliating and hard things I could talk about, um, because a veteran dies every 90 minutes in our country from suicide and I know why. I know why. Because I would be dead if I didn't have a kid. Um, PTSD is like living in a prison from within. Being tortured every day in a way you have to hide from your loved ones because you don't want them to be traumatized too. So, um, I feel it's an emergency every day that this, this treatment is not available. It's a body count. So that's how I relate to the medicine. That's how I think about it. I get concerned that if anybody is harmed or is irresponsible or not looking out for their friends and is harmed using this medicine, it's going to set it back and more people are going to die. So that's why I'm here, mainly to say, please uh, support MAPS. Please uh, support harm reduction. Please party responsibly. <laughs> Please don't allow you or anyone else to um, harm the work that's being done to change uh, public opinion and policy with having some of those. Uh, I don't want anything more in the paper. <laughs> okay, so that's that. And I wanted, I love the way Rick does his talk. So I want to open it up to questions. And I'm, I'm only going to do like a half hour question. So be really efficient with what you want to ask so other people have a chance.
1: Can you hear me? Yeah. Great. I said, in your therapy session, what was revealed to you that wasn't revealed to you prior to that session and other therapy moments? So what happened under the MDMA for you that was sort of the, the turnkey?
5: Thank you for asking that. Um, a lot of what I saw during my sessions was were things that I did know were I did a lot of work on myself. I did know we're kind of misfiring, and uh, my neurological wiring was, was replaying like as if I was about to be hit by a truck over and over again. I knew that that was essentially needed to be fixed. With, uh, being the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and let me go in there like a mechanic and actually fix it. So it wasn't like, ah, oh, uh, we really need to, I had the empowerment and the ability to literally go and do like brain surgery on myself. It was unbelievable. I mean, to say, okay, I see what's going on here: this belief system, this track, this neurological pattern, and just go, done. How simple is that? Did that answer it.
4: So when, when MDMA is used in a recreational setting um, and the primary, I guess, um, feelings that someone has is generated, or is, is it, it's off, back on, uh, it comes from the more empathetic and euphoric uh, feelings that someone experiences. In the psychotherapeutic setting, are you still experiencing that in the beginning stages of the psychotherapy, or is that overwhelmed by the therapeutic setting and pretty much eliminated during that, uh, that environment?
5: I think that's a really good question. A lot of people ask me that, where is it a total, like, you know, buzzkill to be in a clinic with, like, a, you know, blood pressure cuff, and you can't move around, you have to stay in the bed. And it's, um, no, because for me, this is just my experience, I was very frightened and scared of the drug, and so I felt really, like, safe having, like, medical staff right there, and, you know. Um, so from a clinical standpoint, as a... As a as a non recreational drug user, I don't know the difference. But I will say I did have this uh, expansive experience of connectedness that was also essential to the healing of my PTSD. And I'm glad you asked that because I don't think of it, I can't think of any other therapeutic process that um, repairs the profound rip that an individual has from everything and everyone. The, um, Essentially, I, what I realized is that PTSD, in, in a sense, is, is this catastrophic tear from the web of connectedness. And uh, Judith Herman is a, I think she's a, I think she's at Columbia, but she's the chief of, um, she studies, she wrote a book called Trauma and Retu- Recovery, which was probably the best model that I'd come up with before the MAP study, where the, recovery, the treatment process was connecting with a trusted individual, and I would say that's similar to the model of the two uh, male and female therapists. And then uh, doing a certain amount of t- telling the story directly because in, it, when you don't tell your story directly, you tell it somatically. It'll start eating away at your body. You'll have some symptoms. You're, it will be told. So you start telling the story, t- actually telling it. And then the third model is the healing of the tear. So you get into like a group process where other people who have shared the same traumatic experiences and then you can get back into reconnection well that has a whole lot of limitations and in the times that i had been in those group settings we re-traumatized each other we were it was terrible actually um so i really wanted to do her model but without the healing of a sense of connectedness and that this connection is good and this connection is healthy and this connection loves me and i love it back and then i I'm not separate. There's not a whole lot that can be done. So I don't, I don't know if any other treatment that helps repair that. Um, I mean, just from a, a basic standpoint, on a, even intellectually I had a lot of education, so I wasn't superstitious, but on a physical bodily level, I felt God hated me and wanted me to die. I felt like whatever life was wanted me to just be snuffed out, squeezed out, and that I was just this ridiculous person hanging on. That it was not loved, that it was not wanted, and that I was just taking up space because I was so damaged. And um, irreparably damaged was something I heard. But I was able to go into my brain and say, that actually isn't true. But the belief structures are, you can't change them without uh, something that really blows your mind. It lit my head up like a Christmas tree. Every neurological. Potentiality was firing in my brain and that left like a wonderland of potential for me to work on. Now, I'm kind of irritated when I hear people go, oh, I took ecstasy. If... Well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know if they're testing it. And then um, not do like inner work. Because I'm like, what a waste. Maybe you like open your brain up like this and then not do anything to, to make it better. You know? <laughs> so... Set and setting. Set and setting. Intention, 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 intention. Here you go. Okay, hello.
4: Um, So uh, thank you for your talk. It's very inspiring. Uh, I had the same situation. I had PTSD for over 25 years. And I read the studies. And I was not a drug user before. And I tried it for the first time. So as I know, PTSD has many symptoms. uh, Including disassociation, flashbacks, panic attacks, anxiety, etc. And the first time I tried it, I was dancing as well, listening to very loud music and the first thing I noticed is that my disassociation um, for, I don't know, 20 years has like completely t- gone for that period of time. And, you know, I've never had that experience before, no matter what I did. Any, every single healthy practice I've tried. So I was wondering for you, when you had your experience um, how were the symptoms gradually released, and you know in what order, and you know just your general
5: reflections on that? Thank you. Yeah, um, I think the disassociation was well, like the first one to go, once I felt kind sort of uplinked back to um, sort of like a, a greater consciousness that I felt a part of. That's what was the first, first it was like reconnect now with that energy and intention and clarity. What else is next, and for I think it's an individual thing it's like I could search myself at that point i I went into the sessions with a very clearly established intention and inquiries that I developed consciously with my therapist, so there was a big lead up of a lot of therapy, so I would go in with sort of an like agenda. <laughs> you know? but ultimately the professional therapists who do this are they understand the nature of the medicine is not you can't necessarily control that but um it was like on a on a symptom by symptom basis what well, would show up it's almost like you know which ghost wants to get you know busted first and um panic anxiety the replaying of, of of the, the traumatic event or even the replaying of its sensations of it. Because at some point I got a very strong mind and just would block it out, like disassociative. But my bodily symptoms would replay it over and over again. So I think that was the next one I addressed because it was totally impossible to function. I had like irritable bowel syndrome for 20 years. It, my hair was falling out. I had hardly, I was not absorbing nutrition. I mean, that, so I thought, okay, I got to deal with the bodily somatic storytelling first which led to actually talking about what actually happened and in some of those sessions was the first time that I was able to actually talk about it without like completely flipping out <laughs> you, know? Um, you know what it was like to be a child being raped and have a voice but there was medicine just in telling the story and that was the next layer of like okay let's get my body I'll rescue my body from being just a storytelling instrument of hell, you know. So right away, I think in the first session, those were like the two really big keys. Connected to something bigger that does love me, wants me to survive. And then uh, that my body is no longer just this walking illustration of the story. So those were two really big keys. Um, What else? (laughs) Microphone. Right there.
1: Hi, thank you. Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe point out uh,
4: what um, the role of the therapist, what th- you found to be most helpful uh, in the therapist's presence during this whole process.
5: I found the role of the therapist to be essential. And initially I was like, why does it have to be a man and a woman? And, well, you know, um, I I was... I started this with really a lot of, like, critical monkey mind, and, and um, I just didn't understand, you know, what the hell this was all about. But they were very grounded and wise, and that was reassuring in and of itself. So I even did the study. I mean, I wasn't completely committed or in for a while. I was, like, skeptical and paranoid, <laughs> of course. Um, but so the role of, of being a you know, reassuring guide, I'd say, um, I think what I mainly relied on with them is I would just I could have just gone too hard too fast and I could have gotten really sick because the traumatic memories would come on too fast. It was very overwhelming. I I do not recommend going into traumatic memories with this medicine without guides. And like there was this huge wisdom in the male and female counterpart. Um, the yin and yang became very like whoa okay I totally get this now the yin and yang. Um, also, so the mother father representation um, was there for me, and I felt very comforted and sort of uh, um, the sensation of being holistically wanted by the energetics of the masculine female. So, my affirming my own sense of purpose for being born, in a sense, that's not what I thought was going to happen from the therapist, but it did for me. Um, but they would help me close down once I would get start to get to revved up they would monitor my body for me and I would do a closed eyes with an eye shade and you know they put headphones on it would be soothing music and they're like how about you just go inside for a while which was great because without that I really could have flipped out totally so they were regulators and guides and I touched stone I would have realizations and it was great to have people who were really really smart and knew what I was going through to talk to them about what I was experiencing and have them write things down for me I could remember it later. Okay. Did that? Yeah. Thank you for talking to us today. My question is, in my experience, people with PTSD are often ruled by their triggers. What is your experience when you come across a trigger now? That's a great question. I had a lot of triggers that were very somatic, like a smell, and I wouldn't even necessarily be conscious that it was happening. I'd just pick up a scent of something, and I would go into a full- blackout panic attack i mean the kind where people had to you know basically wrestle me to the floor or run off the balcony um so uh now it just seems like i'm aware i'm not desensitized i'm i become actually more aware of the ticker triggers i'm not as unconscious that they're there i go oh okay i remember that now And there's a sense of empowerment. I'm staying with my body. I'm staying with my story. I'm staying with my history. And I can think about it in an empowered way. All right, that reminded me of this thing that happened in the past. But it isn't like I'm hijacked and I'm in field position on the floor vomiting. You know, this is like, oh, it's a disconnect from the fight or flight that was stuck on inside me that said, okay, trigger, and then right to fight or flight. Um, The fight or flight thing got like okay, resting now, and it's there in case something really happens. But we don't need to replay it every second. But I became more aware of my triggers. and help? Yeah. This is more of a comment than a question. Um, uh, I was born and raised
2: in Canada, but my uh, family ancestry is Serbian, and my maternal grandfather fought in World War I. And was captured by the Italian fascists for four years and when he finally was released and came back um, my mother met him for the first time when she was four years old and um, he took to drinking he took to he became a hardcore alcoholic and in 1986 died of cirrhosis of the liver so obviously looking back I think he had i P- I'm pretty sure he had PTSD and but at that time it wasn't acknowledged Sometimes it was even just called shell shock. And, you know, as a man, he had to suck it up and still provide for his family. And so I just want to say, hearing your story and knowing what my grandfather went through, I think we should all
5: support MAP's amazing work. Thank you. Thank you for saying it. Yes. I'm glad you you brought that up because um, self-medicating is a really, really big deal. I mean, those of us that have chronic treatment-resistant PTSD, it's a very slippery slope. Um, I've, I saw so many people in waiting rooms getting treated for the same things I was treated for, that had lost themselves to drugs or alcohol. And even though I was in excruciating pain, I didn't want my son to lose me. I knew that if I, could, I went down that path, it was like a rabbit hole. And I saw a lot, I lost a lot of people who went down that rabbit hole. So another advantage to actually having a treatment that works is that you can rescue people from that unbelievably seductive route of self-medicating. And um, it helped me connect a lot more to compassion with that because you know, when, if you don't have something like my son, you know, I would have, I mean, what would be, what would be the point of not just shooting heroin until I die? You know, so I just never, I couldn't even start because I, I knew that if I got a taste of not being in pain, I would never not want it for the rest of my life. So I was lucky in that sense. But for many people, that's not the case. And, it, and I think that marital problems, depression, uh, drug addiction, alcoholism, are all masquerading as PTSD untreated.
2: So you experienced your trauma as a child, but you went through this form of therapy as an adult. Do you think this is something you could have appreciated had you gone through it as a teenager or as a young adult
5: that's an interesting question. Um, I've thought of that before because of course, when I got well, I was extremely pissed off that I lived most of my life um, with with barely no life, and that the 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 treatment did exist, and people knew about it and i and I and other people were not uh, given that. So I went, wow, that's a complete waste. And um, what, when, at what point was, would I have been able to get that medicine had I known about it or had somebody given it to me or had I been lucky enough to to be in a trial then? I'd say by the time I was probably 14, I think that I was ready for a treatment like that. And it would have probably prevented a lot of the deepening and more systemic symptoms because the symptoms, when I hit puberty, of course, they hit really hard because of the sexual abuse. And that would have been a really good time to unlock the, uh, the structures that kind of set up shop in my psyche and... Validated, I would create, unconsciously create, recreate situations that would validate that. And we know a lot of these, a lot of us are psychologically savvy. So, yeah, I think it would have interrupted a deepening and a rooting of the PTSD that happened had I got treatment right around puberty. Thanks for asking. We're done? (laughs) No? Yeah? Good. Okay, good. That puts us back on schedule. Thank you. Support maps, support maps, support maps. Yeah. One thing I want to say is I don't really know of anything else you can better do with your time and energy and resources in the support maps because it's maybe the only way that the um, reconnecting and like save the planet one mind at a time. You know um, that, but the reconnecting to our connectedness, like Rick was saying, is probably the answer to uh, ignoring uh, environmental issues or. War issues, or you know, this connectedness is probably the most important therapeutic process that we need. We, as a society, as a world, suffer from PTSD. Um, And that can, I don't know of any other cure. So, if we really want to address what almost everything that you think is wrong or that needs a cause to support, it all tracks back to this. So, please support MAPS. Please support MAPS to have more people like me. Thank you.
3: Uh, I'd just like to tie into that. I'm John Gilmore. I'm one of the board members at MAPS. One of the most important things Richard Rockefeller did for me in in helping MAPS over the last few years until he died this year was to explain why he was helping us. And he's a grandson of John Rockefeller. He... uh, He grew up in a rich family with a tradition of trying to cure the world, trying to make the universe better in ways by curing diseases, whole whole hog and things like that. And his theory is that a lot of the conflict in today's world is caused by undiagnosed and untreated PTSD among all of us. Whether it's religious conflict, warfare, sexual trauma, relationship issues, whatever it is, that we're all suffering from traumas that we've had in our lives and if we had a cheap cure for PTSD we could give it to everybody and we would all get along a whole lot better and that was his theory which may well turn out to be true so that was what motivated him to help us to get this treatment approved.
2: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: What John Gilmore just said is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. The fact that a significant number of people walking around on this planet right now are suffering from post-traumatic stress, stress that ranges from light symptoms to the full-blown disorder of PTSD, well, I can't imagine that there's a single person left in the Middle East who isn't suffering from this. When a woman in the audience just now mentioned her Syrian background, I immediately thought of one of our fellow Saloners who is living in Syria right now and is raising his young children among all that chaos. And I remember a woman I knew long ago who was a German war orphan and was pulled out of a drainage ditch by an American GI when she was 11 years old. And I think of another friend who watched as her mother was blown apart by a U.S. bomb during World War II. And I think of my dear Vietnamese friend who was 8 years old when he returned home from school one day to find a crater where 4 generations of his family had been living, over 60 of them, all dead, all but him and one brother. When is all this madness going to end? Well, that's not something that we can do anything about here in the salon, but there is one thing that perhaps we can help with, and that is to find someone among all of our friends and relatives who will take the financial lead and raise the funds for a very large-scale study of these successful treatments for PTSD and and center that study here in Southern California, where the number of military veterans suffering from PTSD is by far, by far, the highest in this country. Somebody listening to this podcast is in a position to move this along. And the next step is to directly contact Rick Doblin at maps.org. Rick and several doctors have been working on the details of a major study like this for a long time. Now, there are some things that have to take place before a large-scale study can actually begin, but the main hang-up right now is that it's going to take a significant amount of money to get the new study underway, even before government approval. However, right now, MAPS has to use its very limited resources to continue funding the preliminary studies that are necessary before a large-scale study is going to be approved by the government. So what's needed, and right now, in my opinion, is a major new source of funding for MDMA studies. The reason I think that we need to find someone with very deep pockets is that us little guys can only contribute a very small amount to these causes. And right now, most of us uh, small donors are sending their money to efforts to legalize cannabis, which... I think is equally important, since 75% of the war on drugs consists of arrests for marijuana offenses. Now, getting back to Rachel Hope's story, although I can't say for certain who her therapists were, when she mentioned that it was a man and woman team, my guess was that she was speaking about Michael and Annie Mitoffer, the two amazing people who were at the heart of the MDMA study in which uh, Rachel participated. And I've been somewhat remiss in not having the Mitoffers back here in the salon. You have to go all the way back to my podcast number 86 to hear Dr. Mitoffer's uh, 2006 Planck Norte lecture. But it may be interesting to re-listen to that talk, as it was given not too long after the study began, and they didn't yet know what a spectacular study it was about to become. Anyway, we all owe Michael and Annie Mitoffer our deepest gratitude for seeing that this study not only took place, but was conducted with the highest degree of professionalism imaginable. I also have to say that when Rachel quoted the horrible fact that in the United States, every 90 a veteran dies from suicide. Well, I had to turn off my MP3 player for a moment just to regather my composure. As a veteran myself, I have long been aware of the significant number of vets who commit suicide each year. It's shocking. It's shocking. And it's a disgrace, a a really black mark on this nation. PTSD has actually become an epidemic in this land, and yet the one percenters in Washington even make it extraordinarily difficult for organizations like MAPS to conduct desperately needed research into this extremely painful disorder. Now Rick mentioned that before MAPS's first MDMA trial, the only thing that they had to go on was work in the underground. And should you want to learn more about that work, I highly recommend the book titled The Secret Chief Revealed by my dear friend Myron Stolaroff. His widow, Jean, called a couple of days ago, and we were both a little surprised when we figured out that it's now been over two years since Myron died. And if you haven't already heard some of his stories, you may want to go to our program notes blog, which you can get to via psychedelicslon.us, and click on Myron's name in the right sidebar list of categories. He is one of the most important men of the last century, and in more than only the field of psychedelics, I should add. Anyway, Myron's book describes the work of Leo Zeff, whose pioneering work is the foundation for everything that's now taking place in the realm of the medical uses of MDMA. In addition to the significant work of Dr. Zeff and the legion of therapists that he trained, There are also thousands of stories about people who, in ways sometimes small and at other times quite significant, brought about some kind of a healing to themselves by taking MDMA and then engaging in some intense conversations with their partners and other close friends. I've already spoken about my own experiences in other podcasts, but if you're new to the salon and interested in how an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer, living in Dallas, Texas, a Vietnam vet who had never even smoked pot, actually wound up at what we now know was ground zero for the introduction of MDMA as a major street drug, well, you can watch the uh, 30-minute interview that I gave, and it's titled, Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate. And I'll link to that in the program notes as well. Now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that in medicine, MDMA can only be used to treat PTSD. In another study that's currently taking place on the West Coast at the Harbor-UCLA Medical Center, doctors Charlie Grobe and Alicia Danforth are investigating the potential for using MDMA to help ease the social anxiety that is sometimes experienced by autistic adults. Note this isn't about curing autism, but about easing the social anxiety that high-functioning autistic adults sometimes experience. And as just a little aside, Dr. Charlie Grobe stopped by for a visit this past weekend, and while he isn't at liberty to pass along any specific details, all indications are that uh, this is also going to be another milestone study. When I was in my 30s and raising my own children, I can't even remember hearing about autism. Today, uh, most of us know at least one family who has someone faced with the challenges that autism presents, Is this just because there's more publicity about autism in the press, or is it actually on the rise here in the U.S.? Well, studies show that instances of autism in the United States are increasing at an alarming rate. The reasons for this are yet unclear, and I say reasons in the plural, because it seems doubtful to me that a single reason alone can be the cause of such widespread reports of autism. But one of the reasons may have been identified recently by Dr. Stephanie Seneff, a research scientist at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In the program notes, I'll link to a story about her study, but after analyzing records going back to 1990, Dr. Seneff has identified Monsanto's Roundup as one of the primary toxins that is causing an increase in instances of children who are diagnosed at birth with autism. And are you ready for this? She predicts that by 2025... That's just 10 years from now, my friends. Dr. Seneff predicts that by 2025, every other child born in the United States will be diagnosed with autism. Did you hear that? So if you're pregnant now or plan to become pregnant, then unless you are eating only organically grown food, you're going to be pumping some very serious toxins into your fetus, and the chances of your child being born with symptoms of autism are increasing each year if you aren't eating exclusively organic food. Basically, the non-organic food supply in the U.S. is rapidly becoming toxic. So even if you aren't thinking about having a baby, you may want to look into this for yourself. So what if Dr. Seneff is correct, and 10 years from now, one half of all the children born in the U.S. are autistic? What if it's only 10% of the new births? Isn't that still a significant enough portion of our population that We should, uh, right now, today, be looking into ways to treat them? Sure, uh, of course we should get rid of the toxins in the food supply as well, just like we did with DDT. But companies like Monsanto are chartered for one purpose, to make as much money as possible for their shareholders. That's why they also control subsidiaries that make anti-cancer drugs. They get you coming and going, no pun intended. Now, couple the rise in autism with the spread of PTSD and then give some thought to how important it is to do whatever we can to keep these MDMA studies in the public eye. The Just Say No crowd is going to continue filling the media with horror tales about molly or ecstasy or whatever adulterated substance is being peddled under those names. And so it's up to us to rebut those stories and Talk about the unlimited potential that pure MDMA has to heal large segments of our population in every corner of the world. We're all in this together, you know. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.